Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Design Recharge. I'm Diane Gibbs, I'm your host, and I'm real excited to have my friend Chris Doe on the show today. Chris and I met online back in February, and we had a great conversation. Um, that day, what I thought was going to be a 30-minute call ended up being, I think, about three hours, and then we met again the next week for about another three hours. So uh, it was somebody who I had an instant connection with, and I'm really excited to share you guys um, maybe already know about him, but I'm going to get him to kind of give us a little introduction just in case. He runs two companies and he's kind of our, we're doing this month long thing where it was kind of scaling your business. It wasn't kind of, it was about scaling your business. And so this is the, the last one of that. But then there was such a great story that when Chris and I were talking back in February, I was like, you also have this struggle to soar um, story. And I really wanted to talk about that story too. So he's riding the fence on the scaling your business month and he's going to be our going over the gate kind of thing to this next month of um, struggling than soaring. So Chris, without further ado, thank you so much for being here and thanks for being on my show. And I'm glad to have everybody in here. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's, if it's, it feels to me like we've been talking for a really long time. So when you said February, I was like, February of this year? Or when was this? But this is awesome. So do I introduce myself now or? Please. Okay. All right. Some of you guys know me as the face, um, as a host on YouTube. I guess I'm a YouTuber or a creator. And the company is called The Future. And it's a content and education platform. We endeavor to do what education hasn't been doing which is to jump across the technology gap and teach in new and innovative ways. I mostly talk about design, user experience, and how designers can learn to speak the language of business so that they can not only survive, but thrive in the 21st century. So I understand now why I'm this interstitial between two segments or two themes that you have going on. The other company that I run, because there's two, the other company I run is called Blind. It's a motion design firm, and we do all kinds of things. But more recently, we do a lot of brand strategy and we work in the space of um, motion graphics we execute uh, uh, identity design we write copy we do all kinds of things for all kinds of clients from all over the world and we've had the great fortune of working with some of the biggest ad agencies and some of the biggest brands in the world including nike right now we're working with microsoft and xbox we've done things with sony playstation etc we've worked on really cool things like car commercials and really not so cool things like dog food and we've covered the entire spectrum i think dog food could be cool i really like my dog it so i guess it's all perspective right yeah all right so we're gonna jump in so we are gonna get some backstory hopefully i know <laughs> If you get my list, if you're on my list, um, you can always get on there by going to rechargingyou.com and signing up. You get all the questions prior. So you kind of get an idea. And you also, I also give you the opportunity to ask questions. Well, you guys can ask questions now as well. So you can put it in the chat. I'll kind of be uh, running that. So Chris mm -hmm. doesn't have to worry about that. But um, so we're going to start off with scaling. If we don't quite get everything, there's a couple questions I definitely want to make sure. So I always feel like growth is uncomfortable and I, I'm five one, Chris I know you don't know how tall I am but I'm not really that tall but I feel tall I have a really tall person inside You're a big stature yeah so my friend Brian Perry when he was growing up he's like six seven I think and he always was a short kid and then obviously not he grew at some point but he grew so fast his bones ached and I remember mm -hmm. him telling his parents I'm hurting you know at night he's like I hurt 
because I guess that when you're doing stuff and something in your mind's racing, you don't think about that pain because you're able to kind of put it out. But when he was laying down in bed, he would get up and tell his parents he was hurting. And I feel like growth is a lot, of, a lot like that. I also had a hairdresser that told me, you really can't maybe relate to this, but I had a hairdresser that said, when you stop changing your hairstyle, that's when you're old. Like if you just stick, so I guess maybe you're old, Chris. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know how long you've had this haircut, um, but you get that you get the idea, especially for I guess women. He was like, "Oh, well, you got to keep changing it up because that's what keeps it fresh." So that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Um, and Jeremy says you're rocking the shaved head, so I agree. Um, okay, so what about being uncomfortable? to you is growth or do you even think of that as the same thing? Okay. Before I talk about growth, I will talk about my hairdo first <laughs> since you brought it up. Let's address the elephant in the room. Yes, I don't have hair, but uh, at some point in my life I had hair, but I, I had everything. Like I used to go to a salon and I would have uh, very expensive haircuts because I wasn't just like a regular dude. I wasn't going to go in and get a $20 haircut. I needed it to be styled and, and colored and all kinds of things. So I spent a lot of money under the chair and I, I did that for a long time I had bleach blonde spiky hair at one point I had dreadlocks at one point full-on with extensions and the whole bit there was a lot going on up there and I started to think about god I am spending a lot of time and energy worrying mm -hmm. about this stuff and every couple of weeks you have to kind of keep it trim and, and mm -hmm. nice and so one day just on a whim I bought electric shears I buzzed off my hair and oddly enough the the people the the women in my life were like hey that's a good look on you and I said okay great and that was when I was 23. Mm. So just gradually the hair gets less and less. Your hairline recedes and you get less and less hair. But it's been the same haircut. And it used to be a buzzer. And now it's a, like a razor blade. Um, and that's what I did. So yes, definitely I had hair. But I can definitely relate because I've been to the salon. I've done all that stuff as you have, Dan. So. so do you remember this band called Midnight Oil? Do you remember that? Maybe like eighth grade? It was a band. It was from um, Australia. Anyway, the guy was, uh, the lead singer was bald. So I always mm. felt like God made me for a bald man. And I, I just knew my husband's bald. Like I would look at people and be like, if they had a hat on, I'd be like, hmm, is he bald? You know, mm -hmm. like that's how my gauging, if I thought they were cute or not. So I always feel <laughs> like, um, <laughs> yeah, it's Australian. It was, uh, Victor knows who I'm talking about. Anyway, he was the first bald guy that I really liked, that band, um, singer lead singer you clearly don't know what i'm talking about and there's all these people outside my window anyway so i mm. think right i wasn't like jeremy said i was personally attacking you which i think he was kidding because i love jeremy but no. um yeah so, but i'm just letting you guys know like i love both yeah. i mean well i was just i wanted to make a little point here is that god puts you on earth and god puts you here as the way you are whether you're five foot one or six foot seven hairy or hairless because i'm kind of a hairless ape myself it's just like, I don't think we need to fight against that. We need to accept who mm. we are and the way we are until something changes where you can design yourself. Otherwise, I don't spend too much time worrying about that. Now, let's get to the growth concept, okay. right? We were talking about growing pains and they're literally growing pains. My son had it because he was like, dad, my body hurts. And I would just go in there and massage him and try to understand what's going on. I thought it was just an idea. I didn't know it was real before. But any, anytime you do something that requires you to stretch from where you're at to where you're going, it's gonna hurt a little bit. Sometimes it's a different kind of hurt, uh, but I know if you're working out, let's say like you're too old to be growing now, but when you work out and you exercise as I do, your muscles will be sore and they will ache. 
That's what happens. That's how you know you've put your time in the gym. That's, all, that's how you know you've pushed yourself because if you don't feel sore afterwards, maybe you didn't push hard enough. That's my thinking. Now, when it comes to personal growth, like the mental stuff, and I think this is an inherent advantage, at least for somebody like me, I lean into the discomfort. I lean into the things that I'm afraid of because I want to grow in that way. Uh, one of my biggest fears in life is to look back and from like a year from now and say, wow, I've not changed much. I've not grown much. And that would scare me because I haven't done anything in that year. I've wasted perfectly 365 good days of my life. And I have a finite amount. One of the things that you know is you will expire. At some point, you will expire some sooner than later uh, and some for unnatural reasons, right? Right. And you want to make the most out of every day. My, my, as I'm getting older now, I'm kind of in my mid 40s. And I'm just sitting there thinking, gosh, I, I'm already at, I'm already past that halfway point in my life. And yet there's still so much more I'm going to learn and do and share. And so I want to make every day count. Hmm, for sure. Okay. I like, I agree. You have to lean in. Somebody was like, oh, that's a great quote. So I love that. I stole it. Okay. All right. So did you ever avoid being discomfortable? Like a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. Um, and many people know this because I've talked about this before. I'm an introvert in the in the craziest way. I grew up um, kind of being a stranger amongst people. Uh, I didn't look and sound or talk like many people in my neighborhood, in my classroom. And so I just wanted to be invisible for a very long time. Hmm. I remember in junior high, Mr. Tuttle's class, he went around the room, he had us all lined up against the wall and he would give us each word and I didn't even understand what we were doing. It was a spelling competition. We went around and if you missed the spelling, you would sit down and one by one, everybody was eliminated and it came down to me and another girl. And eventually I wound up being the best speller in the class. And then he pulled me aside and said, you know, I'd like to send you to the spelling bee. And I said, what do you have to do? He described it. You have to go on stage and you have to spell words. And the stage part is where I got hung up and I said, Mr. Tuttle, please, I don't want to do this. And he was an incredible teacher because he knew how shy I was. And he said, okay, we don't have to do that. So they sent the second best speller in our class. And that's how I lived most of my life. And so there's things that I'm really uncomfortable with, being around people that I don't know, um, stepping into situations where I'm unfamiliar. I, I have many examples of that. Like anytime you do something new, like if I were to go and learn how to dance, I would feel really uncomfortable about doing that because I don't know how to dance at all. I got no moves. I got zero game in that department. <laughs> And someday maybe I'll learn to dance, but I've got a lot of other things I want to learn first. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you did that also similar to how if people have been tuning in each week, Ian Padgett did that by, he was extremely uncomfortable talking to people. Um, so he did it by pushing himself to have a podcast and interview people. And you were one of his first guests actually. Mm. So you did that by, and even just getting in front of the camera you had told me when you started doing YouTube videos, it was very uncomfortable and you kind of had to put a different hat on, right? Yep. Yep. But, but it's gotten better the more you've done it, right? I hope so because we're 500 episodes in. I hope I've learned a thing or two. <laughs> but, but you're more comfortable now. Yes, I am. Okay. Somebody commented by because they've been watching the channel for a really long time. They're like, Chris, you've really changed over uh, the course of the first episode. And I think that was a compliment. But here's the thing that's kind of interesting to me. I don't think I've changed at all. The person that you saw in the episode one was not me. Mm -hmm. Who you're seeing today, the, this bombastic person who's saying things and is talking with his hand is super passionate and just doing all kinds of crazy shenanigans and antics. That's really me. 
if you were to spend time with me amongst my friends, my cousin, when we're playing around as little kids, that's how I normally am. I'm telling jokes. I'm trying to make people laugh and to have a good time. And also my former students would know this kind of in class. I say and do outrageous things because I want to make learning fun. I want to test people and I want to push their buttons and see how far they can go and push them out of the comfort zone. So I will do ridiculous things just to get them to disrupt their own habits and patterns. So the person that you're seeing on camera today is getting closer and closer to who I truly am without any inhibitions, without fear, without fear of judgment and trying to live up to somebody else's standards. Right. Because that's a big part of us being accepted. But I also think that comes with age and also comes with time and not being rejected. Right. More and more, more and more time we put ourselves out there and we don't, and I don't know if it was you who said this or if I was listening to something else, but it seems like if a hundred people comment, 99 said positive things. Um, Positive things are sort of like Teflon. They don't stick. And negative things are like um, Velcro and they stick to us. And we tend to, did you say that or did somebody else say that? That wasn't me, but that was good. I know. I thought it was a really good one. It was just another podcast. They're all running together. But I watched, I went back and watched some really old podcast or um, YouTube and I could tell, like I, I could tell it wasn't the beginning, but I also could tell that it wasn't your, it wasn't where you are now. You know, you could kind of um, get an idea of how much you've grown. And I think it's really brave that you go on camera and you do this even when you're uncomfortable. But again, that is, that's the part of growth. You can't, you don't see that. And I don't know if you ever thought um, you're really trying to disrupt the way we teach um, because teaching isn't as lucrative maybe um, for sure as it could be. It also, I think you have a real vision for what education could be. And I totally agree with you on that. But I also think you have, you want to fill in the gaps. There are some things that, which if you guys haven't watched the young gun series, he gives a prompt to these five different people from across the world go. And I love that. This is like, the best TV, like those 30 minutes go, they're terrific. And I'm like, Oh, I love this. I love that. You're, you're being positive, but you're also being really realistic. And it's not like, Oh, you know, Jeremy blew it out of the water. You know, it's not that there's still things Jeremy could change. I don't know if there's anybody named Jeremy. I can't remember, but, um, anyway, you get the idea, but I really like those. I, um, like for those to come out. So when you're looking, I think sometimes people are like, oh, it's 30 minutes. But it's one of those things for me, some of the content that you have is like, hey, you better sit down and take notes because I think some of it's so um, meaty. And then some of the content is like, it's like watching TV. It's like watching, uh, um, you know, those shows. You mentioned something like about uh, the MasterChef or something, you know. Mm -hmm. I like those. I think those are fun kind of TV. I don't have cable, so there's uh, design based ones. I think there's one with advertising and people are pitching or something. Well, it's something along that lines. It's edited really well. I don't know how long that all takes, but it's a really neat concept. And if you guys haven't seen that, you should check that out. So right now I think you guys are doing the first, is this the first season of young guns? Season one, Yes. Okay. And we're six or seven episodes in, I don't know how many episodes we'll make, but we'll find a conclusion for season one and season two, it's going to be all women. So this is, I'm super <laughs> excited. about that. Yeah. Cause it is all guys right now. So I'm glad you're addressing that That's how Chris and I started talking was we started talking about, um, about women and maybe gender inequality and how we all kind of, just need to do a little bit better in all that and just need to learn more. Okay. So 
One of the things I love that you also do, and this is some of the teaching when you're in front, I love that you're recording some of these sessions. You do a lot of role play. And I do role play with my students too, and I think role play is really important. Why, how have you learned, is that one of the best ways for you to learn is through role play? That's a really good question. I don't think so. I think we started doing role play early in the first season with Jose and I, because he likes to call us, a, we're, we're two grandmasters and we have very different approaches to things. And it began like that. It was just a fun, spontaneous thing. We thought of ourselves as two characters on the screen, not our true selves. But what we wanted to do was to create personas so that people can either identify with Jose or myself. And so we were putting ourselves into situations to demonstrate things. We, we would always uh, you talk after lunch uh, or during lunch about um, the show and say, man, I, I wish we had a camera on us when we talked to the client about X, Y, and Z. Well, it's very uncomfortable and unrealistic to expect that a client would actually want to be filmed talking to you about real things. But Jose and I both in our collective experiences have seen enough of client interaction that it made it seem like, yeah, you can play the client or I'll play the client. I'll push back and you could be a tough person and we'll see. And it was really fun to do. And so now what we do is just an extension of that. And oftentimes it starts as a challenge, believe it or not. Young people or not even young people will watch our show and say, it's never that easy, Chris. I will show you. And that person took it easy on you and they pretty much just jumped in and signed the check, so to speak. I said, okay, sure, come on in, try your best and let's see what happens. And each and every single time they walk away being the video that somebody else is gonna to respond to saying, oh, that person took it easy on you. I said, well, go ahead and step into the box. One such, such person was Melinda. One of the very first episodes that Melinda lives to came on her show, said was like, Chris, let me show you how it really happens in the real world. And I'm like, sure, let's do this. We did it. And then now people are saying Melinda is too easy on me. It's like, well, so you see what happens? Right. Well, there's a lot of things that go into client relationships. There's a lot of things that go into client interaction. And I think one of the things you have a very, um, just like in the young guns, you're, you're blunt, but you're also, you're direct, but you're, I still think it's in a loving way. I feel like, I think I'm that kind of teacher. I don't think I'm just sunshine and rainbows. Um, my students would think that they would not think that I was sunshine and rainbows always, but um, I also do some funny things. I can't wait to hear some of the things that you do to kind of shake them up. But I think it's really helpful. I think sometimes we just need to practice over and over saying something. Just like you said, getting more comfortable in the camera. It's about saying it over and over. And maybe, it, and it, I really, why I think role play, it's because it's not just you alone in front of a mirror saying it. It's that somebody's responding and they're going to respond differently and they may not respond exactly how you think the the client will respond but they can kind of paint the picture of what maybe it would be and the next time you say the same exact that you're just wanting to role play again and it's a different kind of interaction and I just think those prepare us so that we're not knocked off for me one of the things that's really hard is I need time to process something I'm I can be really smart and have a really fun or funny comeback, but it's going to be hours from when that thing happened. <laughs> I am not that quick, I think. Okay. So. <laughs> so what we're talking about is having drills to do anything. We do fire drills. We do earthquake preparedness drills. We do all kinds of drills, right? 
But when we're talking about clients, there's very few clients you're actually going to get the opportunity to speak in front of. So all this weight, uh, the pressure to perform and say the right thing and be smooth and have all the right answers, that's a lot of pressure you put on yourself. So role-playing is an excellent way of, of stimulating or simulating the client experience without having the wear and tear and the heartache of losing jobs and putting your foot in your mouth. Also, role-playing is great when you switch roles because it allows you to reflect and see what it's like to hear from the other side. And this, I think, is the biggest breakthrough because oftentimes we're pitching, we're selling ideas, we're trying to convince, we're trying to cajole the clients to do something. We can't understand why they get in the way of us making art, why they have such bad taste, as so many people say mm -hmm. to us. But when you flip roles and you're actually a client and you're in that position, you start to realize, wait a minute, you have an agenda, you're trying to do something and you're not even listening to me right now. What is going on with you? And so you become really irritated. At some point you think, is it really about you or is it about me? Since I'm the one who paid you this money to solve my problem. The easiest way to really do this in real life without role playing at all is to go pay somebody to perform a service for you. Did they live up to your expectations? Did they have an agenda? Did you hire an interior designer? Was it them coming in and saying, well, we don't really care that you like minimalism. We like maximalism. We want to do this Baroque design. And you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, are you hearing me? No, no, don't worry about it. And you're thinking, oh, I see. You're just doing it for your portfolio to win an award or to further some other agenda. You have no concern for me whatsoever. And so this is the difference. Now, oddly enough that we're talking about hair and hairstyles and being at the salon because one of the examples that I give to teach this is I say to the people who still go to the hair salon, when you go to the hair salon, how does the stylist work with you? Do you come in with samples? Are you expected to figure out all the cool hip trendy styles? Are you supposed to have all the answers before you come to the salon or do you engage in some kind of meaningful dialogue? Where does that person begin and end in terms of understanding your individual needs in terms of your hair texture? Is it thick? Is it thin? Uh, is it brittle? Uh, is it wavy or straight? Do they take all those things into consideration to give you that look that you want? I remember when Friends was super popular, everybody wanted that Jennifer Aniston Bob look, that, mm -hmm. that do that she had, right? And people would probably come in, women all across America would say, give me that look. But I think the, the true stylist would look at you and say, well, your face shape is a little different. This is, okay, so we need to make some adjustments here. And they would talk to you. They would run their fingers through your hair and understand that your, the shape of your head and how much body and volume you have. What's, what's the color? Like, what is it like? So instead of giving you what you want, they give you what you need. And it's a, it's a, a more profound solution to the problem that you brought them. So that's how I think designers today need to start thinking. They need to get away from saying it's all about me and what I want and imposing that on people. They need to listen to the client and use the power of language communication to be able to be a great facilitator and help to unearth the real problem and solve that. Because this is a later question, so we're going to skip it later. But it was me and you were talking and you got real passionate when I asked. I was like, oh, um, you know, what if people are trying to, they want to get their style. They want people to use their style. And you got real kind of passionate. And it's very much along these same lines that your style might not always match what a client needs. And you always have to do that. And I feel like that's one of your flexibilities as a designer. I don't know if that's just when we were in design school, that was a very important part. I think, um, things are a little different of what is taught in design school now that it's not as much about flexibility 
And mm-hmm. I, you and I, I think we both really value the flexibility in a designer. But why do you think there is such a, um, a need or desire um, to have somebody style, to have, so if I'm, a, if I'm an illustrator and I want you to use my style, clearly if you have a style as an illustrator, that's great. You're going you're, you're gonna to get clients that are going to want you for that style but you shouldn't impose that style on someone else. But it doesn't mean that that should maybe be your only thing that you do. Mm -hmm. Well, there's pros and cons. And I want to make the distinction between these two things. On the one side, there's design and including all the different design fields like uh, industrial design, product design, environmental design, interior design, graphic design, user experience design. Design is on that side. On this other side is like art. Like mm. all the traditional arts, sculpture, ceramics, uh, illustration is is art. In in the world of illustration and art, you need to have your own style because that whole thing is about having a point of view. Mm-hmm. So if you have no point of view, your your art is boring. You have no statement. You have no ways of working. Like Picasso had his blue period, and when he went to Cubism, that became a thing. And then he was really well known for that. If you were to try to do like a Rembrandt kind of painting, nobody would care. So artists, musicians, poets, writers, they're all looking for their voice, their lens into the world. And it's a very different world. And you need to have that. Otherwise, you're not marketable at all. Right. Conversely, like the designer sitting on this side of the fence or looking over, it's like, that looks really fun. You get to draw the same thing over and over again. And people love and celebrate you for it. That's wonderful. Now, I want that. But then they go to a client and say, well, pay me money and I'll solve your problem. And they're kind of trying to live in two different worlds. It's like they're stuck in two parallel universes and they're neither here nor there. So I think you have to make a decision. Do you want to be in the creative service space or do you want to be in the art space? If you want to be in the art space, go that way and that's really cool. If you want to be on this side now, you have to realize you have to suppress your ego, to to suppress whatever it is that you want to impose on people and listen to them, understand their, their problem and help them to solve that. Now, there's a lot of skills and techniques that go into it because we're not talking about sitting there. I don't have a pad next to me, but it sounds like saying, so you want green and two pickles and a piece (laughs) of bread. We're not talking about that because that's just being an order taker. And that's very, very different because you're not adding any value to the conversation whatsoever. Right? Right. So it's tempting. It's tempting to have a very strong style as the designer because then people will know you for that. But then you also get stuck doing that. Now, let's talk about this word impose. Think about this. Imagine if you went and visited somebody and you came to their house as a guest and you started to say, well, the furniture in his home isn't right. And I think we should do this. And let's readjust the drapes. You would get kicked out of the house. You would not be asked back because you're just imposing your own aesthetic unprompted. And this is not a good thing. So there's the differences there. Okay, perfect. Love that. So what about, um, why do you think designers, is it just that they really wanted to be on the other side, they really want to be artists? Or do you feel like they, and they've just taken kind of like plan B as being a designer? Uh, Yes, I think in a way. I think designers, some designers, I should say this, and I'm going to say something very controversial right now, are just artists without courage. Because artists have to go out there into the world and risk things and not make any money. They're, they're going to say, I'm sacrificing everything. I don't care if anybody likes anything I do. It's for me. I don't care if I'm getting like lead poisoning or using the paints. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do my thing. That's, that's the artist's point of view. And I have this thing that I need to say and share this emotion, this point of view. 
And then the designer says, I want that, but I want the security and comfort of a job and a nine to five and get paid 50,000. And I want health plan. I want a dental plan. I want vision care. I want all these kinds of things. And so they're stuck. So they're really bad artists and they're really bad designers as well. Cause the designer is going to solve a client's issue, not get a style and impose, like you're saying, impose their style. So if you had somebody in that, uh, situation who is trying to straddle that fence or trying to maybe go full-time illustrator. So you have somebody who's an illustrator, they're solving some things for people design-wise, but they really want to be an illustrator, but they're maybe not getting enough work with their illustration. What would you tell them to do to get um, sometimes it's, are you just doing the same thing and that's insanity and expecting different results, right? Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. is it uh, are, do they need to maybe switch styles because that style or that aesthetic art-wise is not working for clients or do they just need to wait because it's not yet? What would you tell somebody like an illustrator in that situation? Okay. So the illustrator is somewhere between the fine artist and the graphic designer or the designer. They have a specific point of view, a way of drawing. And somebody had said this before about styles in comic books an artist that has a style in comic books is said to have made the same mistake consistently. That's what a style is because if everybody drew like realistically, mm. like what they see, then, then they don't have any style. So you, you do shorthand, you, you draw the face and the nose a certain way. So you're making the same mistake consistently that you're said to have a style. Now illustrators are now being more accepted as fine artists as well. And that's wonderful for me to see that the walls are being broken down but if you have a style that is not very popular nor in demand or was in demand and is no longer in demand, you have to make uh, a decision. You have to say, am I going to continue down this path? Am I becoming more and more like an artist where I don't care if I make any money? And these are all decisions, right? So you get to make that decision and decide, well, I don't care. This gives me great joy. I don't care if I'm living on, like living under the poverty line or not. It doesn't matter to me. I just want to do this thing. You could also make this decision that for money now, you will, you will have a more commercial style that's more popular. And for fun, for love, you get to do whatever you want on the side. So you get to make that decision as well. But if you're doing artwork that nobody wants to buy, it is time to evaluate if this point of view is interesting to people. Now, I'm pretty sure that a lot of artists, the famous ones even, didn't come upon their style the first time they went out at that. And I'll give you an example. I love Bruce Tim. Those guys that know who Bruce Tim is, he's a comic book artist. And he is now like director for Warner Brothers in terms of like the global creative director for all Warner Brother animated films, right? Now, Bruce Tim used to draw like everybody out there. And then Bruce Tim started to draw a little bit like Jack Kirby. He was very influenced by Jack Kirby, who's, who's a legend in, in comic books. And then when he changed his style from going from being photoreal to this very cartoony blocky character with a slightly retro feel to it he became a superstar uh, the same thing can be said with john romita jr john romita is another comic book artist he drew like all the comic book artists in the marvel stable if you will kind of in that marvel style and when he started to draw in these kind of chunkier blockier versions not only a was he faster he developed a style and then his artwork commanded more money so i don't think you need to find your style day one, 
it needs to be something that you work through until you strike a chord with your audience. Now, <clears throat> the key here is to learn to listen to your audience and what they want. So if you do something that people love and it, and it makes you happy, do more of it. And if you do something that you're not, that you're kind of indifferent about and people don't like, stop doing that. So start to shape your own style according to what your audience connects with and you can do something wonderful. Now this can apply to many more things in case there are a lot of non-illustrators out there. So if you're making some social media posts and it really resonates and you're getting really high engagement, I mean, maybe you, you took a chance and you told a heartwarming story about how you suffered and how you overcame that thing and those posts get a lot of engagement, then you start to double down on that. You keep doing more of that and you're like, wow, this is really cool. Every time I tell a personal story, people engage with me and my likes, follows, comments go up. Do more of that and less of the other things until a certain point you start to figure it out. Now, I think when it comes to musicians, uh, the one hit wonders don't actually quite know what the heck that they made that people love. And so when they go to try and replicate it over and over again, they're only known for that one song. But you take bands like the Bee Gees, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and so many, so many more, where they're able to, the Carpenters, where they're able to consistently produce hit after hit, they know themselves, they know their voice into the world, they connect it with an audience, and they know how to repeat that. So whenever you go to watch a band, and when they play, you kind of want them to play the greatest hits. And if they change too much, now you don't want it anymore. Right. So it's like you want more of the same, but slightly different. Okay. So when somebody's pivoting, because this is, sounds like a pivot time for a business, if you mm -hmm. are at a place where it's time to maybe make that pivot, um, either you're not getting the results. One thing you've taught me since February, if I don't, um, uh, I can't remember the word, but if I'm not tracking it, if I'm not measuring it, then how can I get better? Mm -hmm. So that that's one of those things, but you can't have just, so you said if you shared a personal story that was kind of a tragedy or something, hopefully a tragedy is not happening every week. You know, it's not like you're picking the tragedy of the week and you're sharing your tragedy. Um, but it's about being maybe open and honest instead of just sharing the highlight reel, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to say this, though. If, if people like a struggle story, which people do, because when things go too smoothly, there's no conflict. You can't relate. You can't jump in. You don't know what it is that they've overcome, so you can map to your own life. Now, tragedies, that's like a, a loaded word, right? But actually, there are many tragedies every single day. And storytelling is about exaggeration, about zooming in on the details. So what's tragic to you in, as an adult uh, is very different than what's tragic to my son. And my, my son, I'll give you an example. He's 14 right now, right? And I'm working upstairs and then I hear this crying and yelling and there's drama. My youngest son pulls me out and he's like, dad, dad, you got to go down there. I'm like, oh, you know, I got work and I don't have time for all this like personal teenage drama nonsense, right? He's like, dad, you got to go downstairs. I go downstairs. I see my son is yelling at his mom and mom's yelling at, the, at my son. And it's like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. And it turns out his shoe didn't fit properly for a, a recital that he's going to do. So in his world, because the shoe was a little bit too big or not dark enough or, or too light or whatever it was or too pointy, it was the end of his world. Mm -hmm. So for him, that's tragedy. And a storyteller knows how to be able to capture a moment, to shine a light on it, and then to make a lesson or a parable out of that. So you can actually do that in, in your like little moments every single day. Okay. I like that. You know, when I was, my husband was teaching me something about we're going to tile our floor. 
And he said, we could get these really big tiles that are 24 inches. They would be much faster to put down. But sometimes your ground is not always level. And so you have these, these I can't remember. They're like holes, but they're not really holes. Black you know? spots or whatever. You have yeah. stuff. So mm -hmm. it's like a divot. He said, but if you have smaller tiles, they hide that divot a little bit better because uh, there's pressure if you put a lot into one thing. So think of it as a social media post and you're only doing one, one a week maybe. That's a lot of pressure on maybe one. Mm -hmm. Not that you should do thousands of tragedy posts a week or whatever. You know what I mean? We're just using that as an example. But he's like, well, we could do these smaller tiles and then we're spreading it out so that the you know, it's not going to break. One 24-inch tile is a lot different. It'll have less pieces. But I was talking to my friend Kim, and sometimes it's those broken pieces. You know, a tile breaks, and then you have a mosaic. You have an opportunity. And people from Roman times, Greek times, have been using mosaics for forever. So it's they've made, and they have lasted forever, like through Pompeii. Um, they've, they're in the, you know, you're walking on these tiles that these people laid 4,000, maybe not 4,000 years ago, but a long, long time ago. I'm not really good about history and time, but over 2,000 years ago. And I think that that's really fascinating, I guess, um, to me. So do you, because I think sometimes the broken pieces make life a little bit more interesting. And I think that's what you're saying by sharing some of those. But by you, um, did you share that you were an introvert in the beginning or is that something that came out later? <laughs> I think it was painfully obvious to everybody watching the show that I was an introvert. <laughs> Sitting there like Jose is like Mr. Bombastic. He Mr. Extrovert himself. Jose can walk into a room full of a thousand people he doesn't know and probably be uh, a guest in their, in their home the, that same night. And he's so comfortable doing whatever. He will literally eat the the food off somebody else's plate. I'm like, I can't believe you're doing that. <laughs> Me on their hand. And we're like um, the odd couple, so to speak from the TV show. I'm sitting there like, I won't be on the camera. Like, can I just go back and work on the lighting setup and adjust the focal length and direct the team? He's like, no, you have to be here with me. We're going to do this thing together. So you can see in the early episodes, and I talk about this quite often, you'll notice something like my, my mouth is like really tight. And I remember mm -hmm. a day afterwards, my jaw would really ache and I couldn't figure out why. And later on, I connected it that after every show, my jaw would hurt because it was so tense mm -hmm. from thinking about what I wanted to say. Now, this sounds incredible, guys. If you, if you could just think about how simple this is. At the beginning of each show, Jose would say, my name is Jose Caballer and I talk about the design of business. And then I'm supposed to say, my name is Chris Stone. I talk about the business of design. That's it. As simple as that. And we had to do like five takes just for me to say my name and say what I believed. That's how difficult it was. I'm like, my name is... <laughs> <laughs> it was not like that. And so we knew, because we would go live, right? And the way we did this, and you guys don't get to see this sometimes, is we would introduce a show three, four, five times. It's like, uh, like the old cars. So like, would you have to crank the engine to get it started? Three, four, five. And by the fifth time, they're like, we're rolling. And that's how we would start because we mm. were doing it live. So sometimes we're like, oh my God, we're recording. We're on. Okay. The, what is your name again? And that's how the show began. And it's because I needed to practice even just saying my name. All right. So I, I feel that of trying to make something perfect. So do you think, granted, obviously you should be able to say your name when you're, inter, when you're introducing yourself. 
But I think that that has to do with nerves. But I also feel like um, the perfectionist in us, so sometimes just pushing to go live um, took some of the pressure off because you know there's going to be mistakes. And you have to just live with it. Yeah, there's no safety net, first of all, when it's Mm -hmm. live. And you're always thinking, at least in my mind now, I'm not going to speak for Jose, but for myself, I had a lot riding on the line in terms of effing things up. At this time, we're talking about uh, 2014 ish and the business is humming along if i say something offensive i if i whatever it is that i do if it turns off potential clients and there's a riot i've destroyed my business for for no good reason so i had to be very careful in those early days to think about how am i coming across right now am i saying smart intelligent things and so you're you're often editing words that are coming from your brain to your mouth before they get there to make sure it comes out right and that takes a lot of energy to do for sure. So Chris, Jason has a question. I, Juan, I am going to get to your questions, I promise. Jason has a question about being an introvert. Um, do you think that you're introverted and need, need time alone to recharge, or is it that you're uncomfortable in social situations and being the public face of things? 100% it's both. I need time <laughs> to recharge when I'm around people. I know what the definition People think I don't know the definition of introvert. I've worked with people who give... Uh, like they're experts at giving the Myers-Briggs test and they explain to me, you know what an introvert is? And basically most people don't understand what it is, is that when you're around a lot of people that drains your energy, whereas extroverts get energy from being around people. So they can't stay indoors for too long. Whereas introverts, like, let me just stay in my room. I could stay focused and balanced, right? But also this idea about being around people in social, social situations or sort of being on camera, that's also super tough. So you can be an extrovert and be uncomfortable on camera, as many people are. You can be an extrovert and be awkward on stage doing public speaking because that's a totally different skill set. But I was both. So there, I'm going to go down the questions a little bit. So there's an uncomfortable situations at work. You have a podcast where you're doing role play and you talk about hiring and firing and you have people kind of give their best like, we've got to let you go kind of talk. And then you give this great and of how you would do it and you take people through and I'm, I'll link it up in the show notes for sure. But because it was, it really is kind of thinking about it from another point of view, but it, you know this because you've had to do it and you've done it the other way, the way most people think that makes them not feel so bad. And maybe you not feel so bad and tell you what you, what you should have done to not get fired. Right. But now you've kind of, you're uh, addressing it so that now they feel like, Hey, it is best. It's best for me and it's best for you. And we're still friends and I can ask you for a recommendation. So it's a, it's the best way to break up. And it seems like, I mean, I liken it to having a, a boyfriend and I broke up with him and this was the best way to break up. We're still friends this is just better. You're going your way. I'm going my way. Um, we just aren't going to go to dinner alone all the time together or something, you know? And it really felt like that. And it feels like, and I don't know if that's part of the culture at the future or the culture at blind or both. Um, but I definitely want to get into that a little bit. The hiring and firing, I think is really important. Um, the firing is something that we don't necessarily want to do, but how do you decide who gets hired because I think then you don't have to maybe make those firing um, decisions as often. If you, Mm. if you know how 
to hire somebody and mm -hmm. they can listen to that podcast about learning how to fire somebody? This is an excellent question. And it's one that I used to think too. So I'm glad you're bringing this up and hopefully I can shed some new light on this. I haven't spoken about before. One of my greatest fears while running a business is to fire people. So I would be very, very careful to the point in which I was sabotaging our company and overloading people doing the work because I was reluctant to hire people. And that was because I didn't want to fire them. So there's no such thing as a perfect person and you're not going to be able to meet them. Uh, you, it's going to take so much of your energy to interview and test and interview and test again before you decide to hire somebody. So what I needed to do was to learn that, you know what, I'm going to, my gut tells me this is going to work. There's a percent chance it's going to be wrong. And then it's up to the person to perform in the job. But in the event that it doesn't work out, I am now comfortable enough to talk to them, to give them plenty of opportunities to rectify the situation, but ultimately say, this isn't working out anymore. So it's not so much that I want to teach you how to interview perfectly because there's no such thing because people are people and people are very smart at interviewing well and saying whatever it is that you think you want to hear. Mm. So it takes an even smarter person to devise a series of questions so that they don't know how to see the obvious answer and give you what you want to hear. Right. I mean, there's a question a lot of people ask, so tell us what your greatest weakness is. <laughs> uh, what is somebody supposed to say? You know, I like to watch Facebook five hours a day. They're not going <laughs> to tell you those things. You know what they're going to tell you? And in case you ever get asked this question, you don't know what to say. You're going to say, my greatest weakness is I'm a workaholic. Well, that's what every employer wants to hear. It's like, oh my God, this person just wants to work all the time. And I care too much about a project and I just can't let things go sometimes. Is, is that real? No, it's not. So the, the idea that you can actually devise a series of questions to ascertain as to whether or not somebody is a good fit for you requires a whole different skill set, one you probably don't have enough time to invest and learn. So really, it's more realistic for you to learn that there's a 30 to 40% chance that this person's not going to work out. Go ahead and hire them if you can afford them and then have different things uh, along the way and skills that you can develop to see, hey, I need a course correct here. I need a course correct. And if I'm spending too much time course correcting, then it's time to have that. It's time to go our separate ways conversation. And what you're alluding to before is oftentimes when we go to fire somebody, we'll bring up all the things that they did wrong because we want to have justification for it. We want them to have closure and all those kinds of things. But I've been taught that all those things just lead to arguments and negative feelings. So when you say, Mary, Bob, uh, I'm sorry to say this, but you, you and I, we've talked about this before. You consistently come in late. Uh, you're doing work that's subpar. And generally speaking, when I ask you to make some changes, I'm just getting attitude from you. And it's with that reason that I have to let you go. They're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This week I've been here on time every single day. What kind of attitude are you talking about? You know, I'm not, so then you get into this whole argument. And so what they don't hear is they don't hear that you're fired or we can't work together anymore. They hear there's an opportunity still for me to fix the problem. And I want to say this because their pride gets in the way, all kinds of things get in the way, their emotions. And so you get into an argument. So if you want a nice and clean departure, this is not the way to do it. Right. This actually heightens the stress level for both people. So there are some things that you can learn and you can watch up in the air from George Clooney. There's a great scene when the young girl, his protege thinks that she can do it better and she winds up making people cry. And he says, see, there's a reason why I do the things that I do, but she needed to see it firsthand.
So here's a couple of things. Here are a couple of tips. If possible, when you let somebody go, let them go early in the week, like on a Monday or Tuesday, not on a Friday. The psychology behind that is when you fire people on a Friday, they dwell on it all weekend long and there are no opportunities because they can't go on an interview. They feel bummed about it. So fire them on a Monday or Tuesday if you can. That gives them opportunity to kind of get back on their feet. The other rule is if it takes too long to fire somebody in that conversation, um, you're, you're dragging it out and you're allowing people to, to fulfill all the emotions that are being built up. Ideally, you want to do it within a few minutes. So what you do is you call them into your office. Generally speaking, you should have a one witness there if you're going to fire somebody. And you're going to say, look, after everything that we've gone through, I appreciate everything that you've done for the company. I've just come to the conclusion this is not a good fit nor you and I. And I'm sorry to tell you today is your last day. I have a check prepared for you, whatever the severance is going to be. And I wish you the best of luck. And if there's an issue with anything in the future, feel free to give me a ring. I hope that months from now we can look back and have um, a drink together and everything will be cool. Thank you very much. Um, Sandra has your check. Please go see Sandra. And then they're out. And that's all it is. I'm not going to give a reason. I'm not going to get into the details because all the conversations up to that point have been about all the details. Mm -hmm. the, the coming in late, the bad attitude, the work being subpar. All that stuff has been had. This is not the first time they're going to hear this, right? I know many people watching this are going to say, well, that's so cold-blooded. You didn't give a reason. The person's going to walk away feeling whatever. The ideal feeling that they're going to have is numbness. Mm -hmm. They're like, what happened? I don't know. They're out, they're in the car, they're on their way home, and then it starts to dawn on them exactly what's happened. They can replay in their mind all the points that led up to this and why it happened. But at least they're doing it in, in among friends and family that care about them, not in front of all these people that they used to work with and feel shame for being fired or let go. Right. Heidi's saying, no, I love you. I can change. Right. Cause that's, <laughs> that's what happens. And it does, it happens in relationships. It happens in this. And there's no reason that your company culture shouldn't feel like a family if that's what you want. And so this is a great way for saying to be able to have that as being a, a nice release instead of, and somebody who you can still be friends with instead of somebody who is harboring ill feelings, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, with the culture fit, you have something that y'all do at, I, I don't know if it's at both companies or if it's just at one, but can you tell them about the vacation test? Yes, the vacation test. Um, our, our company has not always had the culture it has today, and it's because when you first start out, you, the word culture doesn't even mean anything to you. You just hire people, you think they're talented, somebody represents some potential new business or new ideas, and you get really excited, you hire them, you you grow and then before you know it, you can't really understand why there's all this toxic energy, why there's high drama happening every every third day, why Sally wants what Mary has and Mary wants what Bob has and it goes on and on and on. And it's just, it's horrible. And that's happened to me before that our company grew to a point in which there are people that I respected their work and their work ethic, but I didn't like how they conducted themselves. Some of them were very belligerent. Some of them just were just generating drama because that's what they wanted to do. And it, it made them feel normal to be in a, in a place that was full of chaos and drama. And it, it got to a point where I didn't want to go into work myself. And then mm -hmm. I, I knew this because sometimes I would pull up into the parking lot. And if I saw that person's car there, I would just have this weird feeling, this kind of just sadness would overwhelm and just overcome me. I was like, ah, oh. 
I have to go in and it would take me a minute to kind of collect myself and then go into the office. And you're sitting there thinking, Chris, you're the boss. Why don't you just fire everybody? Like, how did this happen? Well, cultures happen. And, and now the weight of their families and their livelihoods are all kind of hinging upon the decisions that I make, right? But here's the test that I make, and it's called a vacation test. When somebody goes on vacation, are you happy that they're gone? Are you sad that they're gone? Do you feel like you miss them already? And when they come back, that's the true test. So with some distance gives you clarity. So if they've been away for a week or two or whatever, however long they've been away on vacation, when they come back, are you like, oh, Jimmy, Mary, Bob, Sarah, it's so good to see you. Tell me about how your vacation was. We miss you so much. And you're feeling upbeat about it. Or when they come back, do you have the opposite reaction, which is like, oh, man, things are going so great. And now they're going to go back to the way that they were mm-hmm. all that negative energy, all that pessimism, all that kind of stuff is coming right back right now. And they just walked in the door and everybody's like, Oh, and that's the kind of expression you have. And if you start to feel that way on the vacation test, and if you're not really looking forward to seeing them and chatting with them and spending time with them, it's a clear indication you need to let them go. That's the vacation test. They need to go on a permanent vacation right sorry i did that for comedic effect <laughs> i laughed <laughs> I okay. heard you. so we're changing changing um directions a little bit so one of the things i hear you say a lot even today um is about feeling how this is feeling on on a lot of podcasts especially with role play you kind of take a step back and say hey how is this making you feel so how is that person who left on vacation how do they make you feel are you dreading them coming back to work? Are you excited? Are you really happy because they are such a part of the team? So has this been something that you've always been really connected to is your feelings or is that something that has developed? Mm, That's a really good question. Now it's hard to tell, especially if you watch our show before, because I come across as a robot, somebody who's devoid of feeling that it's binary for me. It's like A or B and B. (laughs) But when I was younger, that was an emotional wreck like many teenagers are, but maybe even more so. Uh, things would happen in my life and I would cry. Like the Halloween costume didn't work. I would just cry. And I was like, oh. And at some point in my life, after having gone through a really bad relationship, I just felt like this is not a way for me to conduct myself anymore. And I don't like the person I've become, that I'm so emotionally unhinged. And the littlest things send me to the moon in happiness and also drag me deep into the earth and in terms of sadness and self-pity. It was so hard to govern myself and focus on the things I wanted, right? I remember certain feelings that I had. You know, those butterflies they talk about, like when you anticipate somebody seeing you or calling you, you're like, oh, it just feels so crazy inside filled with knots. So what I did was I took that person out back, I killed that person and I buried them. And that was my old self. What emerged was the new self, which was a super logical person who was like, you know what? Those emotions are kind of useless to us right now. They're just only making things much cloudier. Hmm. But as I continue to grow as a professional in, into, a, into the field that I'm working in, I still remember what those things are like. I could still access those memories. And so then I know what it's like. Now, I think uh, I'm that person that has this strange ability to connect two sides in terms of art and business, feeling and logic, when I can see what's happening inside my own brain. So if I have a feeling, I get to decide what is that feeling? Where does that come from? Am I reacting to the moment that I'm in right now? Or is it something else that's been 
haunting me. And I get to choose then how I want to respond to that. And so that's all happening within a millisecond, right? It's like, boom, here's what I want to say. And I'm constantly taking inventory of my own thoughts to see like, is that logical? Is that helpful? Is this going to help me grow? Who put that thought in my brain? Was it me or was it somebody else? Where did that come from? And so I get to, to access all those thoughts and, and feelings and to be able to put them into words. Simon Sinek talks about this a lot. He says, your gut, I forget what he calls it, but that part of your brain doesn't have the language. The neocortex has mm -hmm. the language parts. And so when those electrical impulses, those feelings reach neocortex, sometimes words fall apart. That's why oftentimes in relationships, one person will say, tell me what you're feeling. And the other person's looking at them blankly, like, I don't know, you're supposed to know this. And you think it's a cruel game that the other person is playing with you. It's not. It's just because they don't have the words to say that. They expect you to be able to interpret that. Well, I do have that ability to know what I'm feeling and what that means in words. And so when I see other people who are struggling to, to communicate those feelings, I can get a sense of that because I map it to my own self, my own experience and say, oh, is it this that you're feeling? Like, yes, that's the word I'm looking for. So I use the language and the vocabulary I have to code the feeling. And then now we can say that, well, based on that experience and that feeling you're having as described by this word, was it true? And sometimes it's not true at all. I'll give you an example. And this is not my own example. I watched Tony Robbins movie, I Am Not Your Guru. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman and her mom were there and it was a very emotional conversation that Tony was having with them. And she was really upset, this young woman. She's beautiful, athletic, strong, successful woman. And she was talking about how her father wasn't there for her and how he was uh, stuck like uh, with alcoholism or drugs or something. He just was an absentee father. And she had a lot of anger and resentment. And the mom had even more of that because that was her husband who let them down. And she was feeling bad and she wanted to be validated in her feelings. You know what Tony said? Tony reached out like like spiritually reached out to her and said, you know what? You're right. He deserves to be blamed and you need to blame him more. You haven't blamed him enough in my opinion. And she was like a little surprised, like, whoa. So Tony is coming along this pity train with me. He goes, you know what? You know what I see in front of me? I see a strong, smart, beautiful, successful woman. And you wouldn't be the person you are today if it wasn't for your father. So you need to blame him for not being there, for missing the, the recital, for, for being consumed in his own drugs and his own problems, but also to blame him for making you the strong, independent, successful, smart woman that you are today. And it totally flipped her mind. It was just amazing to see this. So he took the exact same experience and he changed the word. By changing the word, he was doing some neurolinguistic programming right on her in real time. It was pretty awesome to see. He does this often. So this is like a magic trick for people who don't know what's going on. So that's what I'm talking about. So when I'm accessing my own personal feelings, I'm trying to help map what I've gone through with what they're going through to help connect dots. And if the, if the dots don't make sense, let's choose a different word. And it seems so simple that that could be true, but it's actually very powerful stuff. All right. So I have a question. How old yeah. were you when you killed the inner you? Or the emotional you, the roller 18. coaster, 18. Okay, so this before design school. Yes, I just graduated high school. I went to community college. I was, uh, I think, in my second semester at community college. So now I'm 17 and a half, 18, somewhere around there. And my life turns upside down. In, the mat in a matter of 24 hours, 
I, I'm, I'm fighting with my brother. My mom tells me to give up my dream about going to art school. Which uh, brother? I, my older brother. Okay. I was living with an older brother, Arthur. And he, he was, yeah, I, he was kind enough to let me live with him. And in those moments when I'm like, oh, the relationship, it just seems like when you're height, in a heightened emotional sense, like I knew things were not going to work out with my girlfriend who I love dearly. I would have died for her. Uh, and, and she lied to me. She cheated on me. She, she used money and, and she borrowed money from me that never gave me back and put me in a, in a really tricky financial situation with my brother and my family because I used their money to pay her to do what she wanted to do. It was a horrible thing. So it was all kind of boiling up to this one moment and it all just fell apart. So I felt like every person that mattered to me in my life in that 24 hour window turned their back on me, right? My brother. And I remember thinking, I hate him. I, I, I thought mm. that I hate you. I didn't say it to him, but I, I was thinking I hate you. And his girlfriend later on his wife at that time, I already didn't like her. So that was like nothing. Uh, my, my girlfriend at that time was like, oh, she broke my heart into a thousand pieces. And then my mom saying to me, it's okay to give up on your dream. Let's go, like, go back home. We'll figure this thing out. And you don't have to go to that prestigious design school that you want to go to. And, and that's like when you know the, the, the bottom of the universe just opens up because the one person you go to, at least for me, for emotional and spiritual support always, forever, is my mom. And for my mom to say that to me was just like, that was it. And so that night I cried my eyes out like a baby. I cried. Uh, after I got all the anger and the tears out of the way, I remember just lying on the floor. It was like next to the futon. I wouldn't even want to be in the futon because I was all like twisted up inside. I was just thinking to myself, you're like a pathetic human being. We did not, when we were like six years old, we did not dream our future to look like this. The fact that, you know, you, your mom has abandoned you, your brother you hate, um, and your girlfriend, it's, it's just, it's all tattered. And you're just this emotional wreck, blaming the whole world, swallowing up yourself in self-pity. None of this you've taken responsibility for. And I said, you know what? All that stuff, all the self-pity and the sadness and the sorrow changed. It changed to a different emotion, not a good one. It changed into anger. Mm -hmm. It changed into pride. I was like, you know what? I will prove them wrong. I will make my ex-girlfriend regret that she ever broke up with me. I'm going to be so successful and so whatever. She's going to be, man, I just gave up on that person and I shouldn't have. And then I'm going to prove my brother that I am focused. I can do this work and that he was wrong to judge me a certain way. I'm going to prove to my mom, prove to my mom, mom, you shouldn't give up on my dream because I'm going to make it work. And it crystallized in my mind what I needed to do next. I had then decided in that one moment, I'm going to go to art school, go to art center. I'm going to pay for it any means possible. If it meant it took me 10 years to graduate from that school, I was going to do it because now I'm focused. So I moved out all the negative energy. I refocused and channeled it. Unfortunately, it was fueled by anger and, and pride, I think, and channel into achieving this one thing. And I could block everything else out. So in the, in the remaining three or four weeks that I lived together with my brother, I focused on my portfolio, got everything done. I did more work in the four weeks than I had done in the previous seven or eight months. And I, I just got super focused. And that was the beginning of the new version of me. Now, I've, I've gone to therapy to deal with this moment, but that's besides the point. So to me, that's an awesome story, Chris. And uh, to me, I think you're a sensor. 
to me when I hear you, when you're on the podcast and you're asking people or you're talking to people or you're talking to me, you ask about feelings a lot. So it, it, um, I know what you're talking about. You kind of have to distance yourself to some extent to be able to, because it can't, um, it can't run. It can't be the battery that drives your roller coaster, your emotions, because it's 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 not logical. But not I also, no, it's not. <laughs> It'll bring you off the road. Is the problem right? And that was what it was doing. It was it was driving. And so then you started driving, but you also took a lot of responsibility. And then now you can take responsibility. You made these things happen, not your mom or your brother or anybody else. But now people. I'm sure that girl is looking back now and being like, boogers, I shouldn't have let him go. But you know what? I think you have a much better partner. <laughs> she did. <laughs> Once I went to school and she's like, well, who is this guy? She called me up. I'm like, you know, I don't want to do anything with you. She tried many times to rekindle uh, something. And I was like, I swore to myself, never again, no matter how tempted I was to jump back in an old relationship, never, ever again. Well, I think that was smart because I think you and your wife are a good <laughs> pair. Right. I think she, she's yeah. <laughs> so do you know what I mean by being a sensor? Like you can kind of see where people can't. Um, I think that there's always in a lot of people in their person, they don't have that ability to make the connect, connect the dots. They're doing this, doing this, doing this, and they don't know why they're not losing weight. It's because they're only running on the treadmill at one, you know, and going at 2.0, right? They just can't see what they need to do to get to that next step. For me, it always feels like you go back to the emotion and it doesn't feel like robotic. And I don't know if people have told you that. I kind of feel terrible that people have told you that. And I know we're over time and I'm really going to wrap it up. I'm still good. Don't worry. Okay. I don't think it's terrible, to be honest, because when I grew up and I told my therapist this, I said, am I hero of Spock? <laughs> because he always did the logical thing. I couldn't understand why Kirk was running around, like just trying to save everything. And he's just like, he was angry and he was he was uh, prideful. He was all these kinds of things. Fox just like, no, this is what we need to do, Captain. We'll fix this thing and we'll get through that. And he had a superpower too. He had that super Vulcan grip, right? And so I was like, that was my hero. And when I told my therapist that she, she went like this, she's like, oh my God, I thought that character was so tragic. <laughs> he like lost his humanity and he was seeking his humanity back. So here's the weird thing. Sometimes when I watch movies, right, and my wife trips out on this all the time, and it's, it's like, it's classically uh, predictable, like how I do this. I almost always identify with the synthetic humans on screen. And when they die, and they perish, or they're tortured, I, I can actually cry for them. My wife's looking at me like, you know, so the real people you have no feelings for, but when that robot in Rogue Squadron like dies, you, you're like tearing up for that guy? I'm like, yeah, honey, because think about it. That guy sacrificed himself. It wasn't even an issue for him. He had never wronged a single human being. He stood there and he bought the heroes or the heroine time to accomplish the mission. He stood there and just shot people and just died and he fell on the floor. The same thing with Q from uh, Blade Runner 2049. 2049. It was like, man, guys, he's just trying to do what's right and you just keep destroying the people who want to make humanity better. Like in the... In my mind, the synthetic people were more human than the human people because humans are full of vices and they want to sadly sometimes indulge in their own selfishness. And that was just wrong to me. So that was like a morality thing where the robots never, they, they, just, they just are. Hmm. So here's one thing I want to say, and hopefully somebody can get some value out of this crazy rant that I've been on is this. The reason why 
I think I can connect the dots. And it seems so obvious to me, whereas the person and the people in the room cannot see it is because everybody is worrying about being themselves. Like, do I look smart? Am, am I being witty and charming right now? Am I going to get fired? Does that girl think I'm hot or he's really cute? They're, they're going through all these things. And so they're just busy being themselves. So when a person or a problem enters the room, they can't see it because they have all these voices in their head. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm spiritual. I don't even meditate in, in any way that I think it's classically defined. But usually when I'm entering in the room and I have this mindset, I am nothing. I'm just a mirror to what it is that you bring. Hmm. I don't have any other voices. So it does drain me. Like when I'm sitting there talking to people, I'm so focused on what they're saying. I'm looking at the micro expressions down on their face. If their eyebrows furrow, if they're, they go like this with astonishment, if they're leaning in, if they're closing up or if they're opening up, I'm processing all of these things at the same time, listening very intently to the words that they choose and they say. And if a person takes a moment to pause to say something, for example, we did a pro call this morning that you were on, Diane. Alexander, every time I ask him, like, is this good? He would be like, yeah. Then I knew that that wasn't a true answer. He was being polite. And most people just want to hear yes. So when it sounds like yes, they just agree. So mm-hmm. in that moment, I know I didn't serve him well. He wanted something else I wasn't able to give. So I need to circle back to that if that matters to me. So I think the key to any of this, to being a great facilitator, a great designer, a great thinker, a great lover or partner to somebody else, is just to kind of like silence those voices in your head and to be present to the moment. That's what it's called like being mindful. Like, right, I'm being mindful. I've cleared the thoughts out so I could just be here in the moment with that person and that's it. And I say this staring into a piece of glass with a tiny little aperture and saying like, like I can actually connect with you or something. Right. That's why I like to be able to see you. Cause I know you'd have to look somewhere else to see me, but I appreciate I, I reposition my monitor. So it's kind of closer <laughs> to the, to the lens versus over here. I'm giving yeah. you good micro signals. I promise. Okay. <laughs> I can't see you, but yes, <laughs> I'm telling I you, I am the glass and the way it's refracting the light is encouraging me to say more. No. Okay, good. All right, so we have some questions from the audience. I want to make sure I get to them. So I'm going to go backwards because they this one is most connected to what we were just talking about. Would you describe (laughs) the way you've been solving your problems, whether firing people, focusing down on a goal, a a kind of design thinking process? The end. Is that a question? That's the question. (laughs) That was like a statement. Who has that question (laughs) statement? (laughs) <laughs> this is Jay. Jay asks, would you describe the way you've been solving your problems, whether firing people or focusing down on a goal, oh. a, a type of like design thinking process? Is it, and mm. I think that's maybe where the robotic kind of comes in, but I really think it's logical, but you're really using emotion a lot, I think. And not, not that design thinking isn't, doesn't, because design thinking has empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Design thinking is about empathy, I believe. And Jay, I don't know. So you have a definition of design thinking that may or may not be the same as mine. So what we have to have is a conversation. So there's a shared conceptual framework around what that word means, because I fear if I say yes or no, that might mean something very different to you. All I can do is describe the process. And sometimes I feel like we're too quick to label things. I know why we do it because we label things to understand them. Like when somebody does something, you're like, Oh, that's just like an apricot. I'm like, well, no, it's, like its own unique flavor or that's why we always say it tastes like chicken. 
So I really don't know, and I don't get caught up with labels too much, Jay. So if it sounds like design thinking, then I, my answer is yes. And if it doesn't, then my answer would be no. But that's an individual um, question and only one you can answer. Okay. I have a, a this is a Diane question. This okay. is totally off, but when you were talking about movies before. Anyway, so what's your favorite movie and why is it your favorite? One of my favorite films of all time is Miller's Crossing, directed by the Coen brothers. It's one of the earlier Coen brothers films because it's super complicated and it's like there's characters and accents that are really hard to understand. And I just love the the way they control dialogue in that film. And and it's just, you're on the edge of your seat watching the film. And it took me multiple viewings to fully understand all the characters and the dynamics that are, that are going on. But I love the Coen brothers and that's one of my favorite films. Do you ever go back to the same movie or book? I mean, I guess as when you have kids that are little, you're reading the same kind of book because maybe it's a, it's a story or they like the the visuals or whatever. Is there something like that that you go back to? Is it Miller's Crossing? Like for me, movies are very emotive and they can, I don't really cry in real life. Like I'm more robotic, I guess. And then I get my cries out at a movie. Um, so I want to watch certain movies that are going to make me cry. So I have my go-to movies. So do you have anything that you have it? So it's a safe place for you to, I don't know, expend emotion. I don't do it that way. That's very interesting. Um, okay. So just maybe I need some more therapy. (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? It's not for me to say, but you know, that 18 year old person where I shut down all those emotions. Mm-hmm. And then I'm listening to my therapist many, many years later, probably 10 years later, maybe more. She's telling me that the emotions actually serve you well. They're kind of like your early sensor warning, your radar. And mm-hmm. so you need to have this kind of emotional IQ kind of thing and, and to pay attention to it. And I get that. And the, the thing that has unlocked all of my emotions is having children mm. because first time in your life that you love something more than you love yourself in the purest way. Like when you're in a relationship, maybe you want to have sex or you want to have a relationship or build something or because that person's beautiful, whatever it is, status. But when you bring a child into the world, a boy or girl, it doesn't really matter. You're now kind of responsible for this person and you give um, unconditionally your love. And so you can imagine things that you would never think of yourself. Like I wouldn't cry if like something bad happened to me. I was like, it happened. That's life. But if something bad happened to my child, I was like, so now you really understand what love really means. And so when I watch films now where there's a struggle between a father and and his daughter or a son and his mom or whatever it is, I just feel that hurt because I imagine my child going through that. And that's where I start to feel those things. So having children will open up the emotional thing. And maybe you have a pet that you really care about. It could be the same thing. And, and that's where you unlock. I don't really go back and watch movies over and over to re-experience a certain feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I crave new experiences. And I also have this strange fascination with films that once I watch it, I start to decode it in my mind and break it into discrete moments, into the lighting, the act, the structure. And so I don't really need to see it so many times. Cause right. I remember. Okay. So back to other people's questions. Okay. Um, um, Bonnie wants to ask, how does Chris prep himself, the introvert, introvert before getting on screen? Do you have to do much prep anymore? 
No, I don't. But I do have to put on hair and makeup. And I, I know you guys are thinking this is a joke. This is not a joke, you guys. It takes a lot to put this face together. My wife's like, honey, we have to go. What is taking you so long? I'm like, don't rush me. I'm still doing my <laughs> thing here, okay? I'm doing the thing. No, I'll tell you. Okay, look, I'm, I'm Asian. I'm originally from Vietnam, which means like a lot of us have oily skin. We have that worst combination where it's oily here in the T-zone and dry out here. So I have to both use a lotion to mat myself down and to moisturize myself. And I was just saying, uh, before we let everybody in, let me put on my lipstick here because I have dry <laughs> lips. So I don't want to come out all chapped. And so I have to powder down sometimes because my head gets all oily and shiny. So I'm trying to mat myself down. So that's the prep in terms of looking okay on camera. Now, the other part of like mentally being ready, I don't have the problem talking in small confined spaces with cameras like this. Once I, you get some practice, no problem. I do still get scared when I go onto stage and speak to a large group of people. And luckily for me, my tolerance of large is getting bigger and bigger. Large used to be 50 people. Large is now like four or 500 people now where it starts to get a little, little crazy on the inside. And I do do certain things. So let me tell you what they are. And there are a bunch of Ted talks on this. By the way, if you want more information on this, you should look up uh, there, I wrote a blog article, like things you need to do right now to get business or something like that. And I recommend a series of TED Talks, just 10. You don't have to watch all of them. So there's a couple of things. You do vocal exercises. Uh, I think the guy's name is Julian. I forget his last name. He's got a wonderful last name. And he says, if you do these vocal exercises before you speak, they're really going to help you about doing the raspberry lips, like and rolling your R's, like, that kind of stuff. And just taking in deep breaths and being very mindful of it will prepare your throat and your body to speak. And, and a lot of people believe in saying tongue twisters, the more difficult the ones, the better, because it really makes you focus on the words that you're saying and that you enunciate correctly. So typically, before we go on air on the live streams, on the drive into work, I'm doing these in my car. I could be as loud as I want. I'm not going to disturb anybody. And they, they get my tongue ready to speak. Those things help out a lot. Amy Cuddy talks about the power posing taking a lot of space in a room, opening your chest up, shoulders back, that kind of thing. I try that several times. It doesn't work for me. I think it's a placebo thing, but if it works for you, go for it. All the power to you. And what else is there? Oh, some people say that if you go for a long walk before you speak, it clears your mind. It kind of calms your nerves and then that'll help. The last thing that I do, the thing that it's been my go-to thing, if possible, is to acclimate. Like I'm a piece of lumber, right? Like when you put on a hardwood floor, you're supposed to let the wood acclimate to the room, to the temperature and humidity before you go and install it because it could expand mm. or contract. I like to be in the room. I like to sit there and look at the space. I want to walk up on stage if I can and look like what it's going to be like so it's not going to be the first time I'm seeing things. And in that moment, then I start to become more and more comfortable. And that's what I need to do just to speak. That sounds like what you do with clients too. You're not just giving them what you came prepared. You're going to give them what they need or what you hear that they need. I really do think you're a sensor. Um, I think that you sense the, what I think a lot of people are numbing a lot of their feelings, right? When they're, mm -hmm. and that's why you're having to ask, well, how does that make you feel? And sometimes they're just not they're We're going 90 miles a minute and we just don't take time to assess what, how we're feeling or how we're thinking about it, or analyzing our, situation or the emotions that are kind of going through mm -hmm. i i'm not sure like my my i get the feeling that people are not necessarily numbing themselves but that they've not spent a lot of time thinking about what they think about they're Absolutely. not taking inventory of 
oh, I felt this way. So what does that mean? So here's my, here's my feeling on this. And every time I talk to my kids or some people, they, I have a very similar kind of conversation, right? If I talk to my 14-year-old son who's like full of hormones and just like going bananas on us right now, if I ask him like, why are you upset? Well, this and this happened. And why did that happen? And then he'll change the story and he keeps changing and keeps changing it. He goes around in this giant circle. So the whole world is so complex and there's never a solution for anything. That's what he's going through. And my whole thing is, you know what? Let's just focus on that one thing. The first thing you said was, I was upset because my brother walked into the room and he said this. Now, why do you think he said that? So I want to drill in deep, deep, deep until you get down to the core. And then I ask usually in a Socratic way, do you think your reaction to that thing that he did is equal to, to the, the, is the reaction equal to the action is what I'm, I'm asking him. And he's like, no. Do you think, you could have responded differently and not better, not worse, just differently. And he's like, yes. What, what might you do differently then? So this is what I help people do. I help them to clear out the other junk and just go really deep so that they can get closure on that one issue. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you skip from topic to topic, emotion to emotion, you never get any resolution. So you're still dealing with the same crap that you're dealing with when you're in junior high. You did not go deep enough. And I think that's the power of therapy or coaches or whatever you want to call them is they help you get to the bottom and to change the way you feel about that thing. I think that's what's important. Now, I forgot. I have to tell you the single most effective exercise that you can do when you do public speaking or going live on TV or anything like this. This is the most effective thing ever. So I, I don't want to end this episode without talking about this. Is this. When you think about yourself and trying to impress others, to look good amongst the other speakers, to be as smart, as funny, or as witty, you're comparing yourself to them, and it's a competition in your mind. But if you walk into the moment, the stage, the camera, whatever it is you walk into, and you think, I just want to make people a little happier than they were before I spoke. I just want to share something that might improve their lives. So you shift the focus away from you to making other people's lives better. That's the best way to calm mm. your nerves and to be wholly present and to be the powerful person that you're going to be is to sit there and silently to wish each and every single person well. Like, I want you to be happy. This is great. How can I be of service to you? To be of service to other people it takes all the pressure off you. I love that too. Jay says, amen. Okay. Greg asked, he's been watching a lot of YouTube, uh, the future YouTube channel. I've heard you advise fellow designers to not always get too clever with logo type, to get clever, not Mm -hmm. anyway, uh, but to try to stick to the old trusty typefaces. How do you handle the ever-growing base of clients that want their logo to be a tad too clever? This seems like a trend in modern logo design, and as a designer, it's hard to let the client go. Okay. There's a couple of things here to unpack from Greg. Greg, first of all, thanks for watching our videos. That was a very nuanced question. And I want to respond to that. First of all, in terms of typefaces, uh, t- uh, having one typefaces over another isn't necessarily a sign of being clever. You want to work with strong building blocks before you do anything because historically well-designed typefaces can be clever too. And it's the application of that. Okay. It's like this. When you talk to some of the best, most world-renowned chefs in the world, they're like, what'd you do? I was like, well, I caught the fish and it was fresh and I used the herbs that were in season and I prepared it simply as to not to mask its flavor. All I want to do is to bring the flavor forward to you. 
and that's it. It's not about doing the foam thing and all that other kind of stuff. That's just too much trickery. Now, the tendency here is once you picked a solid typeface to begin with, is to over-decorate, to be overly clever and force an idea into it, therefore compromising the overall visual integrity of the mark itself. And that's where I think most designers fail. If you are Landor and Associates and you come up with FedEx with a little arrow in there, it's perfect. It's sublime. It's conceptual. It's clever. But it doesn't compromise the letter forms. Most people don't even see that there's a little arrow in there. And so when they discover it, they smile. And that's what you want. You don't want your letter forms bouncing all over the place and looking like a bicycle because you're forcing the letter forms to do something that they're not supposed to do. And if you listen to and prescribe or ascribe to the, uh, the modernist thinking like Massimo Vignelli, he's like, words don't have to express visually what they're going to do. A word that says jump doesn't have to look like it's jumping. That's called illustrating and that's a whole different thing. The words alone are powerful enough to say what it is the intent is. And that's not also to imply that you don't need to sit there and craft a very unique solution to the problem that you're trying to solve. That's a very different thing. And if you look at the most classic logos, the ones that have endured the test of time, they're free of those adornments and decorations and these also clever things. The same is true about music. We're still listening to Beethoven and Bach and Chopin. We're still listening to them. Years from now, is anybody going to care about Blink-182 or whatever band that you're listening to right now? So if your idea is to create something in the moment that's a fad or fashionable, that's totally cool and there's a place to do that. That's not what I try to do. I try to create things that are enduring. Like you don't want to build a house to destroy the house years later because you've made really bad creative decisions. And that's it. Next question. So I thought that really goes with the young guns when you're doing the packaging, the packaging that was the soap that was, um, you know, on at the edge, you're just looking at it. It's a beautiful packaging, but there was, you're missing the whole point of that really pink soap or whatever. Anyway, you guys should watch that young guns. I'll link it up in the, was that fair in that criticism? Dan? No, you're, you're wrong, Chris. I'm like, whatever. No, but that's exactly what you're saying. So to me, it's, you're just pulling the string and it's, you're just remaining the string tight. This is a design. Um, it's just a a foundation. So all the design should lay on that same foundation. I, I, it's about designing, not decorating. You've got to use what, and if, if I was the soap maker, I'm like, I have spent a lot of money to make the soap pink. There's other things in it. It's just rose water, glycerin, and some sort of oily gunk or right. something, right? But Special was, oil. Yeah, something. So it was just very small, but they also had this pink and they were, every single one was a different color. And I mean, his, um, anyway, I just, I really liked those young guns anyway. So I can't wait for more to come out. I love this. And I like your critique on them. Okay. Juan has two questions. Um, one, and this has to do with school, which I think maybe goes with the young guns a little bit. What are your thoughts on studying in college? Now Juan is from Argentina and college is a hundred percent free in Argentina. Um, he's talking about studying in college and working at the same time at the cost of having to be in college two or more year, like for two or more years additionally. It's hard to be free, Juan. It really is hard to be free. So anything that you do, you spend money for, there has to be um, greater value in what you receive than what you spent. Otherwise, you feel lopsided on the deal. 
if you spend no money because uh, taxes or oil or crops or whatever has happening in your country where education is free, take advantage of that. But here's the thing, immerse yourself fully in the college experience and take the most that you can from that experience, okay? If you don't have to work, I would encourage you not to work while you're in school, especially if the work is not related to the field that you are studying. If you're in the field of design and you're working for a professor, that's a whole different story. But if you're working at the fast food joint, I think you're going to spread yourself thin. Again, you can see that if anything, for me, I tend to have deep focus. I don't do many things, but I try to do the things that I do really well. So I choose to do this at this moment and I, I go bananas on this. So I, I would not, I would say that stay in school because it's free, get the most that you can, pick the best teachers, the teachers that you align the most with. If you like a teacher that's very supportive and nurturing, go for that. If you like a teacher who's like a total ass kicker and is cracking the whip in your face, go for that. Whatever works best for you. And then spend any free time that you have supplementing your education with what else is available online via books or, or videos like ours. Just do that. Okay. And I do want to say this thing. I want to share a little bit of me here in this moment here. I realized something as I take inventory of my home, it's filled with lots and lots of junk. And so I was thinking to myself, you're just a consumerist uh, uh, hoarder, if you will. And I was wondering like, what is wrong with me? But it, but I wanted to think about that. And I was thinking, why is it that when I'm into fishing or fly fishing, I buy all these books on fly fishing. I subscribe to like the infield fishermen or field and streams. I buy the jacket, the boots and the hat. And I go all in. And my wife is annoyed by these kinds of things. She's like, do you really need to buy all that stuff, honey? And I say to her, yes. But here's how I do it. I go in super hot and then eventually I burn out on it and then I move on. Unfortunately, I have these relics or artifacts from that one experience. But when I'm into something, I go all in. I don't just dance around it. So when we're talking about emotions or watching movies or hobbies and interests, I want to go all in. I want to experience it to the fullest to know, is this right for me? And where will this lead me? So as you can, or you can't see, but I'm into comics and toys. There's things behind me, you know, all over the place. There's, there's things you can't see off camera, but I buy every version of that book, the sketchbook, the, the black and white version of that book, the colored version of that book. And then I buy the original art from that artist in a comic book. That's because I'm all into it. And when I go to the shows, I talk to them. I want to see, I study their brushstrokes. I follow them on Instagram. That's the kind of insane nut that I am. So I don't want to do many things poorly. I just want to do a few things really well. Same thing with school. See how I tied it in right there. Good job. So Juan also says um, he sees a lot of videos about scaling businesses, but not about starting and making a name for yourself. So that is like a whole nother. So to me, that's something that is missing maybe in design school. There's not a lot about business or there's, or there's not a lot in some design schools, I guess about that. Most um, I would say. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, I okay, mean, so, that's where you have a great tool with the future. You can, yep. right? Okay, so let's be real here. Let's be real. Uh, I hate to say this. I'm gonna, this is like a heaping dose of uh, shut up juice or uh, just reality sauce, okay? I'm going to just pour it all over this thing. Let's talk about this. Why do many teachers teach design in school? Well, many of them couldn't get a real job. I'm just going to be brutally honest here. Many of them could not get a job, okay? Many of them had a job, were successful, but for whatever reason, 
decided that working with clients wasn't worth their trouble or they just weren't making enough money or they didn't like managing a business. So they go back into academia and that's really cool. And we're grateful for those teachers who dedicate themselves to teaching. We know the money is not there. That's for sure. Okay. So they're not doing it for money. And so now we're going to ask those same teachers to teach us craft and to teach us business business skills that they did not learn. That's not going to happen. And you don't want to learn business skills from a failed business person. That's just reality. So we shouldn't expect our teachers that are teaching us design and craftsmanship necessarily to also possess the business skills because some of the best, most prolific uh, and most accomplished designers out in the world are not teaching right now. They're just too busy to do that because it's a lot of work to teach. So then where do we find a business person to come in to speak and teach creative people? Well, that's not very likely to happen either because the best sharpest business minds are teaching guess where at the business schools, because that those are the people who are super passionate who understand this, who want to do this because it's too much for a lot of designers. It's going to go right over your head that these business concepts don't appeal to you at all. So that's the reality of it is a, the teachers are not qualified. They're not that interested and it's not realistic for us to expect that from them and B getting business people to come in. Once you step into a real business class, you're not going to like it either. And you have to take some ownership and responsibility over this. You could audit a class that is teaching business people business skills and see how well you like that. You could go to a community college and take some business courses and see if that's working for you. So that leaves this giant gap between those that do and those that teach. And luckily for us, we find that there's not a lot of competition for those that do and teach. And so we're trying our best to fulfill or fill those gaps that are between the real world and design education. That's what we're trying to do. And we do have videos. We have one called how to launch your business from zero. We try to produce those videos and hopefully you've seen that and that'll help you. I'll link it up in the show notes for sure. All right. So Ryan had a question. How do you, do you, how do you think what you wear to client presentation influences your legitimacy of your skill set to your client or audience? And can you underdress or overdress for the occasion? Okay, this was a complex one. I like this one. I'm glad you're asking me for fashion advice, you know? <laughs> fashion advice here. First of all, you are legitimate in your mind or not. What you wear and all these other things that you surround yourself are just uh, handicaps. Right. So if you need external validation that you're good, maybe you're just not that good. Or maybe you need to just dig deeper to understand who you are. Again, dive deep into knowing whether you're good or not. Did you know you were good before you walked into that room? Did you know you were good before the client said anything? Because if you do, you're not going to be externally validated. You're not going to be swayed and your mood's not going to swing because they say they love it. And you're like, oh, I am a genius. And they say they hate it. And like, I'm the worst there ever was. <laughs> what, what happened there? You knew going in that you didn't solve a problem. You also knew going in, you came up with three really smart solutions and they're lucky to have you. You know that. So all the other things are external things, crutches that are handicapping you. You don't want to do that. You don't want to depend on those crutches. Now, it, there is something to be said when you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you might sound smarter and you're not worrying about whether or not uh, your shirt length is too long or too short or whatever it is that's going on. Okay. So I like to go into a meeting dressed smart, but comfortable for what I like to wear. I don't necessarily need to, or am expected to match the clothing of the people that I'm meeting with. Oftentimes I'm meeting with executives 
the C-suite, the CEO, the CRO, the chief marketing officer, chief technology officer, and they're all pretty buttoned up people and they went to business school. I like to go in there, dress kind of, um, uh, what is it called? Not casual, but... Business casual? Maybe business casual. I might I wear sneakers is. with slacks and, and a button-up shirt. I may or may not wear a tie or a jacket, but I don't do that necessarily to match with them, but that's how I feel like I look the sharpest. And I'll mix it up, you know? Obviously, I don't look like a normal person because I have funky glasses, right? I have a lot of meekly glasses in case anybody's wondering. I also have my ears pierced, so there's some gauges here. You know, you guys can see that. And I'm going into the room looking very different than everybody else. And, you know, the reality is I've asked my clients before, do you want me to look a certain way? They're like, no, Chris, we totally expect you to look like this. And if you didn't, we might have second thoughts about you. So I want to express my individuality, not to overdo it, not to be so contrived about it, but to feel comfortable and express a little bit of my personality and my idiosyncratic nature, right? I might wear a funny ring or a weird bracelet or something. And that's how I, I enter these things. You just want to look like you put some thought into it and there was an intention going in. If you come in with a Hawaiian shirt, uh, corduroy shorts and open toe shoes, you're sending a very different signal. Your signal is like, dude, life is chill. This is the way I look at the world. And I don't really care about this kind of stuff. And if that's your jam, you do it. Brene talks about this when she went to some business conference, Brene Brown. Um, and she went to give a talk and they said, oh, well, you need to wear a business suit. Do you have a business suit? And she's like, uh, no, I don't have a business. I, I mean, I, she had one, but then she was felt so uncomfortable. She went back, she put on her cowboy boots and a denim shirt and jeans and went out there and just rocked it. And she was her. So it's about what you feel comfortable being in. And I think some people in the beginning, you are trying to mirror. Um, but I, I think you really got to think about what makes you, it's kind of like a power pose. You got to think about what you feel that you can address client responses what outfit you think does that the best i think yeah helps the you the better the better you are the more confident you are the less you give a f what you wear and look like that's right. it so if you're somewhere in the middle and you're growing in terms of your confidence you you might take a more take a moment or two to kind of put yourself together so you look and feel sharp right uh, i remember this one of the smartest best professors i ever had at art school he came in with some really old looking black sweatshirt and black sweatpants with some white nikes and that's what he looked like that was his uniform he wore the same thing every single day except for graduation during graduation he'd wear a three-piece armani suit but other than that he just wore black sweatpants and a black sweatshirt and we're not talking about like designer things that wear look funky and weird and tight it was just like some russell athletic brand kind of <laughs> that's what he rocked he didn't care and he he was respected and revered by students and teachers alike but some of that I think comes with time. So it's about him being comfortable in who he is and then it didn't matter. So I don't know if he would have didn't did that when he was 22 or 23. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you're coming into yourself. Whenever you find yourself. Yeah. Right. And some people find themselves really early on, like my son who's 14, he kind of knows who he is already. So he's set. The other one needs some work, but yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have two more questions and then I am going to let you go. If you have time for two more questions. I can. Yes. Let's okay. do it. So Heidi asked this, and then I'm going to end with renters. Um, Heidi asked, I keep track of clients and how much I was paid to see how I'm doing and adjust my marketing. I only recently started keeping track of my leads and people who found me online and actually contacted me for whatever reason. 
I thought it must be important to know that people are finding you and how often they are finding you compared to a year ago. So kind of tracking this. How does Chris go about this? Mm, really good question. Earlier, Diane was talking about something that we said. I think it's an economist. I forget his name. I think once, I want to say his name is Drucker or something like that, where he said the quote goes something like, what gets measured, it gets improved. So whatever you measure, whatever you pay attention to will improve. If you're trying to lose weight, create a journal, log what you weigh, what you eat, how many calories, all the kind of stuff. And you start to adjust your behavior accordingly, right? So I've asked Diane to kind of track what videos do well, or if you're in social media, what, what posts get a lot of engagement. So keep tracking that and do it in an official way so that it's not just based on a gut feeling. Because oftentimes, and we've done this, and I've been wrong many times where I, where I was saying to the team, oh, this video has led to this many subscriptions. And I know that led to four. Whereas this video I thought was a total loser has led to 50 uh, new uh, subscribers. So you, you kind of have to look at the data and you have to monitor that. Now, if you're into the client space, I highly recommend, I don't use it, but from what I hear from the guys at the office, HubSpot is a CRM, which is a customer relationship management software. It's free, which is amazing. HubSpot, right? Use it. It'll allow you to track your leads. It'll track your close percentage and the average size of jobs. You're going to have a lot richer data. And so your entire team can use the HubSpot to track leads and, and what happens to them. And it'll give you visibility on, well, this quarter we should build an additional $2 million or 200,000 or 20,000, whatever the number doesn't matter. But now you have visibility on that. And so you can track all these things. What's really cool about HubSpot too, is if you send an email out through HubSpot's email program, it includes a little tracking piece of information. So it, it knows if the person's opened it, how long they spent on it, if they got to the bottom of it, et cetera. And I believe they have other tools to help you monitor the success of your campaign. So if you send them a PDF, you can embed a little tracker into the PDF too. I believe HubSpot can do this. And then you can see if they opened it, what page they got to, if they went through the beginning and end, how long they spent on it. So this is data for you to not necessarily to spy on people, but for you to adjust your communication tools to see if 30 pages was too many. Or why do they keep skipping page seven? And then you can adjust it. So we live in a very data rich time right now. And to be able to make sense of it and to, to inform the decisions you make based on data versus gut instinct is probably the way to go. I also think that's a great tool for you to share with your clients, especially if you're trying to track how your designs are going and how effective things are. So I think that would be, to me, that's a, something that a lot of designers don't do is track how well something performed, how many, if it's for a apartment complex and you're trying to fill, you know, vacancies, how many did this promotion get? And I, I feel like sometimes we make it and then we don't come back and see, and we don't keep um, adjusting when we make a website, what else are we doing to get it out there? And I think this could be a good tool for your clients to use. I always, if I have Google analytics, I put, the client's Google email, and then I put my Google email so I can see all that stuff. I don't necessarily understand everything, but at least I can see it. But it's funny that I, I don't do it for me. And one thing Chris told me kind of gave me a, not super quick, but a really uh, thorough go through of my YouTube was that I wasn't using my um, meta tags well. So since then, I've really been doing something different and using every single to the end where they say you can't make anymore you have to go back so um i'm excited about just trying and i think tracking maybe using the hubspot thing would be something 
I also think you always say, you know, give value, give them something that they can take away that it's, you know, your client is now got something from you before they even gave you a check. Now they've gotten something that's going to help their business. If you're giving them stuff for free, then they're definitely going to find more value in you than somebody else. Mm -hmm. And there was a second part to Heidi's question that I forgot to answer was how am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to client-based work, the, the team is using HubSpot, but we're not doing so much client work these days. And where I spend my time tracking is I use uh, the, the, the old engagement tools built into most of the platforms that are out there. So I use the native platforms. So if I'm on YouTube, I'm, I'm looking at the analytics quite often there. And Ben will send me analytics in terms of sales that are happening on the site. And so he's doing reports for me. So I have visibility on that as well. So right now we're really more a content and media company than we are a client service company. Do you think, okay, so this is how I feel about teaching. I need to have one foot in the design world. Do you feel like with blind, it keeps you one foot in what designers are dealing with, with clients and everything um, because you're creating content for them. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, do you feel like having blind has been, I mean, obviously having blind gave you a lot of the resources that you need to be able to create the content that you have. Mm -hmm. Is that, go ahead. No, I, go ahead, finish your question. I mean, do you feel like having, because uh, you, you kind of have, uh, you know, I think you've transitioned more to the future, um, but then there, it's kind of running, blind's running on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, is that still something like that you, or how else do you get content? Is it just from people asking questions? Mm, I see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Uh, just for a point of clarification, blind's been running on its own for over, I would say almost like 20 years. I, I, I don't spend that much time running projects. I used to be more involved in management and my brain space, like what I thought about was more are all dedicated to blind until I had a second company. And now I have a second company and the same team, the same group of people that were doing the work before still continue to do the work. It's just when I'm saying I'm moving away from it, it's like, I'm not thinking about it anymore. I'm not sitting here thinking about how the landing page can be improved or what kind of CR software we need to be using to onboard clients or our decision tree in terms of what clients to take on and what clients to pass on. I don't spend any more time thinking about that. Now there are many implications of having two companies. One a design company that's consistently doing work and then the other one's an education company. So you could say that it's a symbiotic relationship. If I try a theory out um, in, in the real world and it works, I can happily report back to the future team. Or if I have a concept from the future and it's like, does it work back and forth and how do they, are they interconnected? And is the future better off if blind exists or not exists? There's a lot of questions, but in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. My ideas, the topics that I want to talk about almost never come from clients for the last four years. And we're 500 videos mm -hmm. into this. They almost all come from listening to the pain points of the people who are communicating to me on social media or commenting directly on our YouTube video. It also is that the, the cast of characters, if you will, the funny people we employ, they all have kind of weird ideas about what to do. And so they'll corner me in the office and they'll ask me a question. I was like, I get the reaction. I was thinking, that would make for a pretty good episode. But I've not even tapped into the reservoir of all the things I've learned in design school. I haven't even taught all that stuff yet. I've only begun. I've, I've barely just, that's a drop in the ocean in terms of what I've learned, not to mention the 22 years of running a design practice. So 
there's not enough time in the day. I wish I had three amazing design writers who, who I can say, you know, I need you to research this, talk about this and get that deck ready for me so I can go and present it to the people. There's all these amazing artists and designers that have influenced my thinking that I want to share, but I don't want to just whip out a book and start talking about it. I need somebody to do the research, like one of those Vox videos or now this videos so that we can do that and we can teach the world because there's so much there to unpack and that's what I want to do. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. Renners, when designing a logo or brand for yourself, either as a business or a freelancer, should your logo be more complex slash clever than the ones you design for clients? I think Mm -hmm. I know the answer to this. It depends on what your skill set is. If you're a calligrapher, if you love doing monograms and symbols and all that kind of stuff, you want to showcase that and that reflects who you are, go by all means do that because that's easy for you. But I honestly think it will make very little impact on the business itself in terms of you onboarding new clients if you had just gone in and used Havetica Noya and typed in in Havetica Noya bold your name, your phone number, and all your content information, uh, contact information in lowercase and you put it on a card black on white and you just printed it nicely and that was it. It would make zero impact. Too many people inflate the importance of what they do to think that it actually matters and makes a difference in the world. Right? Uh, I forget what this is called. It's like some kind of bias, like confirmation bias, where you seek out information that backs the things that you already believe in. Right? Mm-hmm. You think because you're a logo designer that you need to spend all this time and the logo is just going to be the cat's meow and everybody's going to rush in and say, wow, we need to hire renters. His logo is amazing. And the fact of the matter is if you spent more time educating, inspiring people, informing them of things that were happening in the world of design and you built up social media campaigns, you, you came up with an excellent landing page. So once you got the attention, they wound up on your site. It gives them some piece of information and, and it pulls them in and you have a good onboarding process and you're great with your communication, your verbal communication Chances are, if you spend your time on that versus your logo, you'll do much better. Okay, it's the same idea about your resume. Like, I don't give a flying F what you do with your resume. I don't care. Nobody looks at it as far as I know. They care about your work. Work on a couple of killer case studies. Do that. Make sure you're spreading your posts across the different platforms in a way that's native to the platform. That will get you more results than just working on your logo. All right, so how can people connect with you so they can one thing I've done is I'm part of the pro group so that you have a pro group that's like for a year um I mean you can keep renewing it I'm assuming you're not going to kick me out after a year unless I don't pay um but so there's a ton of resources in that I guess you can't talk less than two hours so I guess that we have a, a thing maybe it's just me and you Chris I don't know so they can always go to the future and that's without an e is there a reason there's not an e yeah, several reasons. Uh, one, one is uh, we came up with the, the future uh, because I love Futura, the typeface, Futura, you know, and I'm not going to call it Futura. That's kind of stupid. So we just dropped the E, but we, we also need to be able to get a URL. We need to have an interesting name that's different, that's trademarkable, all those kinds of things. And so those are all the reasons why it's spelled without an E. Uh, the future, the word future, is just a generic word and it's very hard to protect that because you can't own that word, right? But if we drop the E or we change the spelling into a unique combination of, of letters, then it's something that's more ownable and that's important for a brand to, to have things that it can own. There are several future conferences out there, which I didn't know about at the time. And now it's like, well, that's the future. And they all compete with each other, but ours is different because it's spelled differently. And now you can recognize the difference between the two. 
Right, for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm shared over here, but I'm going to read them out. So you can follow on Instagram at the future is here, and future is not spelled with an E. You can also go to the future without an E.com. On Instagram, you can follow Chris at the Chris Doe. That's D O. There you go. Um, he put his hat on now. Um, on Instagram, the Chris Doe, or you can also follow, uh, check him out at blind.com. I think mm -hmm. that's, and then the, so the pro group, there's, um, a lot, you have a podcast, you have the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash C slash the future is here without the E. Is it a snapback? David wants to know. David's from Seattle. Is it a snapback? Yes. Yes, it is. I believe that's called a snapback. I think we'll so. We'll snap too. you back. Okay, look, we make it very easy for you to find us on all platforms, all major platforms from soundcloud itunes google play for our podcast you can go and find us on youtube if you know how to search if you know how to type if you have fingers you can find us and it's amazing that people are like how do i find you on facebook like i don't want to talk to you because you don't know how to use the internet apparently. <laughs> so we're on facebook we have multiple pages on facebook we have twitter accounts multiple twitter accounts on instagram multiple twitter instagram we're just everywhere on linkedin you can find us everywhere on medium we we do our best we we, we have a blog you go to the future.com we have a blog you can find us everywhere we're trying to make sure that whatever format makes sense to you we're going to do it within reason obviously and so you guys go out there it's there and i i do want to say this a lot of people don't understand this is that we create content that's different for each of the platforms and not not always unique but so if you have one experience on YouTube, you might have a different experience on Facebook and a totally different experience on Twitter because I, I don't want to be lazy and just copy and paste everything in because that's, that seems lame to me. Hmm. So the medium is going to have like really long articles. Whereas obviously on on the, on YouTube, it's going to be all video based. And if you want resources and you want to participate in some of the design critiques or some of the, the challenges, then you would have to find us on Facebook because it's hard to track and talk to you on YouTube in the comments. It's just not conducive to, to communication that way. Right. Right. I do want to say this. There's a couple of super exciting things that are happening. Super exciting things. Now we're going to be launching a new design challenge. I think I'm going to share it with the public. The pro group is going to do it, but I think I'm going to share that. So if you guys are ready to sharpen your design and topography skills, there's going to be a new design challenge coming. But the thing that I'm really excited about, and I'm going to tell you, Guys, publicly here exclusively, this is the first place you're going to hear about this on Design Recharge is this, is based on some of the things that are happening with the, the young guns, I want to do a World Cup of design where teams from all over the world are going to compete against each other to represent national pride doing a logo challenge. So we're going to give you a word or phrase, and then teams will compete in a bracket, like a tournament bracket style round robin play until we have the crowning the best country in the world to do like lettering. That's what we're going to do. So I'm, we're still in the early planning stages, but I think this is going to be freaking awesome. So the Philippines can represent Brazil, Portugal, Germany, England, United States, whatever we can How do. How will they now. apply? Social media. You have to follow us on social media. See, I was trying to like work that in like that. You know? Right. I like it. That's a really cool. I really <laughs> like the, that's re I really like it. Are you still going to critique? Cause I feel like that's a great learning tool. Yes, I'm going to critique, but then we're also going to have vote by the, the mob. So I don't want to be the sole person. I just want to give my opinion and critique the lettering. 
and then let the universe speak and say, well, overwhelmingly, this thing got the most number of likes or retweets, then they win. Boom. I love that idea. That's awesome. I really enjoyed the young guns. I also, maybe I just really like to hear how you teach. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm guess that way I can kind of be a little stalker on you, but I, I just think they're really good stories like you're cutting what they say. I, and I was, when the kid did the gold bond, I was like, that wasn't, that was, you're breaking the rule. Cause he, the rules. Yeah, you might know he said, I came up with a logo. I'm like, no, you didn't. You have 35 logos on this. Thing. <laughs> Come on. Let's be real here. <laughs> but I liked right. that. I like that you were honest. You know, sometimes they do honest. <laughs> No, I'm not too honest. I think that's really good. I think it's really important. I don't think you didn't, I think you, you didn't say anything that didn't need to be said. So I don't know. I That's the magic of editing though. So that's cool. Sometimes what? I mess up. Mark saves my butt. So I, I want to let you guys know it's not all real. Mark does save me, make me sound smarter. Sometimes Aaron will play back an edit for me. I'm like, well, that sounded pretty good. He's like, do you know how many edits I had to make to make that happen to make you sound good? Look, you keep it up, young man. You have a future in this. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for giving us so much of your time. I really um, am so glad that we're friends and I'm just happy that we get to do some stuff together, hopefully in the future. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, you guys for tuning in. I think for almost like two hours, two hours on this thing. This is super long. I think my throat is totally trash. I have a live stream to do tomorrow. You guys are going to love it. It's about UX design. We're bringing you back an old school, an original gangster, Nicole Johnson. She's going to be on her show. So tune in tomorrow at 11 a.m. talking about UX design. And on that note, I want to wish you guys well and see you in the future. Woo! All right. And guys, just so you know, next week we have Jason Schultz, which is really taking on the struggle to soar. He got cancer. Got cancer. I don't know. It sounds like something he bought at the store, but he didn't, um, but he got it. So we're going to talk about how to deal with somebody in your office if they have something bad happen to them like that. And then also if, if it happens to happen to you, how to deal with it and how he used design as therapy. He's now does pro bono work and also any of his freelance he gives to cancer research. So he just has a really neat story and he's just really chill. So I can't wait for you guys to me to introduce Jason Schultz to y'all. So we'll see you next week. Thanks. And thanks so much, Chris, for coming. Thank you. Bye guys. <laughs>